0: Hey everyone, this is Dan Lobby and welcome to another edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. This is a special Thanksgiving edition here. Uh, special guest today, Jeff Perlman, who wrote the book Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is our guest on the podcast today. That's coming up here in a few minutes. I got a chance to read the book and, and it was excellent. I read it on our trip to Tampa, actually, um, and I just... I couldn't put it down. It was that good. It's got a lot of great stories. Jeff and I get into that. Uh, we get into uh, his thoughts on the USFL, some Browns ties uh, in the book that I didn't know about. Some I did and some I didn't. So we talked about that. And uh, it's it's a really great interview with Jeff. So uh, that's coming up momentarily. But first, thanks to Sibling Revelry Brewing, our sponsor here on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. And a reminder that we're going we're going to have an event December 17th at their tap room in Westlake. There's going to be a link to sign up for that event in uh, this podcast description on the apple podcast store and also in the post that goes up on cleveland.com slash browns but it's 8 to nine thirty monday december 17th that's a couple days after the denver game uh, which is saturday night uh, so if you want to come and talk browns with us mary Kay will be there i will be there dougley Maurice, i believe will be there too uh, it should be a great event uh, so without further ado here is jeff perlman talking about his book football for a buck the crazy rise and crazier demise of the usfl Jeff, thanks for joining us.
1: Dan, you're too young to remember the USFL. Tell the truth. <laughs> I
0: I don't want to make you feel old, but I was <laughs> probably about four or five uh, when the USFL was around. So
1: uh, that's not so, terrible because I was about ten. So that's not terrible. Yeah. That's see, okay. so
0: so we're not we're not that that far apart. Yeah. Um, right. Anyway, uh, the the thing that I, I want to get to a lot of the other stuff. You know, the Donald Trump stuff, all of that. I know you've talked about that stuff ad nauseum here, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to get to some Browns related stuff first, because there are some Cleveland Browns connections in the USFL. And and the one yeah. that stood out to me, of course, is Brian Seip. Um, of course, he was a, an NFL MVP, part of the Cardiac Kids up here in Cleveland. And then after that, he went on to play in the USFL. And uh, he actually played kind of a, a pivotal role with the New Jersey Generals and, and Doug Flutie. Can, can you get into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so Seip was a a big marquee signing for the USFL, who's kind of forgotten in the wake of sort of Jim Kelly and Steve Young and Reggie White. But he came after – so Donald Trump bought the New Jersey Generals after the first year in 83, and he wanted to make a big splash. And they'd had some really bad quarterbacks their first year, like Bobby Scott and a couple of really crap players. So he got uh, Brian Seip and he signed him as a free agent. Uh, He was a former NFL MVP in 1980 with the Browns. And he came in, and he played okay. Uh, he wasn't amazing, but he was okay. They had really bad wide receivers. Um, but he was definitely a top, you know, six or seven USFL quarterback. And, um, but he wasn't really what Trump wanted. Trump wanted marquee headline guys. And Brian Snipe at that point wasn't. He was just a really good quarterback. So after the 84th season, um, Trump went out and signed Doug Flutie out of Boston College, a reigning Heisman Trophy winner, and made him the highest-paid uh, football player in America in the history of organized football. And when, when Flutie signed, he naively thought he would take a year to learn behind Brian and Brian Seip would be the starter and then Flutie would be the backup. Because back then, that's what they, you didn't rush quarterbacks back then. You're actually a rookie quarterback almost would never start. So he came in and he thought that. And a couple weeks later, uh, Brian Seip was traded to the Jacksonville Bulls um, because, you know, Trump was all about headlines. I mean, this was, a, this was about getting attention to him, not about really winning football games. So Sype was traded to Jacksonville and uh, a couple weeks into the season, he uh, he suffered a, a, what ended up being a career ending injury. That was the end of Brian Sype. It's,
0: it's interesting that how that all plays out because I think the, you know, obviously one of the big themes in the book is uh, Donald Trump coming in and, and taking over, taking ownership of the generals and, and his approach to the league and how it went against uh, sort of what they were trying to do. There were a couple owners that kind of did that, it sounded like, but but Donald Trump was kind of the face of that, going to come in, spend a bunch of money, try and make a bunch of headlines.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, he um, side was in, in a way, sort of small news con- compared to some of the other sub-users. No more he uh, – well, first he hired Walt Michaels, the former Jets coach. And that was after he almost got Don Shula, almost took him away from the Miami Dolphins, He came really close to doing something, so he tried. He signed Lawrence Taylor to a futures contract. He tried signing Mark Asner. He tried signing Randy White. He tried signing Warren Moon. Um, he wound up signing a lot of really good NFL players, Gary Barber, Jim Leclerc. Uh Obviously, he, he got that Flutie out of Boston College. You know, the U.S. event was supposed to be a slow growth league. The idea was slow growth and not paying too much money, and you got to walk before you can run. And Trump, that was not – his whole goal was to get an NFL franchise. And he thought, uh, in order, part of their way to do that was to build up an NFL-worthy franchise in the USFL. Well,
0: one of the uh, the kind of underrated maybe Trump stories in the book that I thought was early on when they had the initial—I I don't remember if it was the initial owners' meetings—but but one of the first owners' meetings, and they're mm-hmm. waiting around for Donald Trump to to join them, and he essentially calls in and says, "Hey, you know what, guys? I'm uh, I'm, I'm not in right now. i <laughs> i don't remember exactly what he said, but he basically said that." Uh, he he wasn't going to own a team like they thought. This was, of course, before he, he would buy the Generals a year later. But but I thought that was kind of a, uh, a a funny sort of underrated part of the of the Donald Trump saga in this book.
1: Oh yeah, it was very very Donald Trump, uh, especially what we know now. Where oh, we have this guy, this New York businessman, real estate guy. He's going to buy the New York team, so we're set. This is going to be great. They needed, they knew they needed L.A., they needed New York, they needed Chicago, they needed Washington. So getting a New York owner with pretty deep pockets was a big deal. So they're all gathered in this conference room in San Francisco. And, you know, they, you can picture this Archaic kind of beige phone where you patch in people and they put them on speaker and Hey guys, it's Donald. So, uh, yeah, uh, it turns out I'm not going to buy the team after all. I got a lot of stuff going on. I hope it works out great. All right. Good luck guys. I'll talk to you. Click. Everyone's like, what the hell just happened? And they, uh, yeah, they lost their New York owner. What? Luckily, a guy named Walter Duncan, uh, a rich man, oil man from Oklahoma, wound up sort of doing the the other owners a favor and took the New York franchise for a year. The New Jersey franchise for a year. But yeah, that was the introduction of Donald Trump.
0: Um, and 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 there's a, there's just a ton in this book that obviously you know kind of a if we knew knew then what we know now sort of thing. It, it tells you a lot about Donald Trump. The the videos that he had people watch when they would show up to his office. It's uh. <laughs> It, it's, it just shows that it's hard to tell the story of the USFL without really talking about Donald Trump.
1: Well, you know what's interesting? I always say, because, um, you know, when I was really in the heart of promoting this book, people would say, oh, anti-Donald Trump or blah, 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 And I'm like, I kept saying, you have to understand, you could be Sean Hannity, you could be Chris Matthews. You could not research a book about the USFL and come away from that period of time thinking Donald Trump would make it the president. Because he was so ruinous to the USFL, and his entire goal was to use this entity and get an NFL franchise. So it just, he was such a huge part of it in a very destructive way. I mean, it just is what it is.
0: Uh, now, the, another Browns tie w- with all of this. I, I want to go back to kind of the beginning of the league. Uh, there was a five foot eight linebacker named Sam Mills, and, and he actually ended uh-huh. up in the USFL because of former Browns coach Sam Artigliano recommending him.
1: Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories. Actually, is uh, I mean, most people from a certain era know who Sam Mills is, and he's a, certainly a borderline Hall of Famer, and had this great career with the Saints and the and the Panthers. Um, he came out of Montclair State, Division Three. He was cut by the Toronto Argonauts. He was cut by the Cleveland Browns. He was a five foot nine, you know, in shoes, probably five eight, really middle linebacker, and uh, Sam Rattigliano, the coach of the Browns. Call up Carl Peterson, who is the GM of the Philadelphia Stars of the US Adele. This was in nineteen eighty three. And said, listen, there's this guy you should sign. And you're gonna see him and you're not gonna wanna sign him. Well, what do you mean? Well, he's a middle linebacker and he's five foot nine. I'm not signing a five nine middle linebacker, Sam. Well, just, just just listen. If you see him play, you're gonna want him. Because he hits like a freaking fire hydrant and you you'll you'll you'll, you'll want him. He tells Jim Mora, the head coach, look, Sam Rettigliano call. He said we should give it. I'm not signing a five-nine middle linebacker. Wow. Well, he says we should look at him. Well, they invite Sam Mills. They give him $40,000. At the time, Sam Mills was teaching photo and woodworking at East uh, Orange High School in New Jersey. And he shows up in camp, and he's just the absolute best player in camp. And, and for my money, he winds up being the best player in the history of the USFL. He's just an unstoppable, ridiculously good middle linebacker. Uh, and thanks to the USFL, and really thanks to Sam Ricciolano making that call, he went on to have this legendary career. Sadly, he died very young, a legendary career. Uh, it,
0: there's so many personalities like that in this book, too. And, you know, uh, another another style, Kevin Mack, came out of the USFL. There's so many guys that just essentially needed an opportunity the NFL wasn't willing to give them. So, kind of among all of the, uh, you know, the crazy stories about the partying and, and the drug use and guys that were never going to make it in the NFL, there were. You know, there's, there are a lot of stories like Sam Mills that uh, these guys just needed an opportunity, and the USFL afforded them that.
1: You know, it's funny. I was watching, because I'm a loser, last night I was watching a little bit on YouTube of the 86 Jets Browns playoff game, this really great game. It was Bernie Kozar's second year. I grew, I grew up a diehard Jets fan. And I just I was bored, and I was on YouTube, and I was watching this game. And Kevin Mack had a huge game, USFL. Gerald McNeil, the kick returner for the Browns, huge game, USFL. Uh, The Jeff Starlight receiver, one of them was Jojo Townsell, uh, USFL. There's just any game you watch in that era. I always say, um, if you watch the 8-7 Super Bowl between the Broncos and the Redskins when Doug Williams won the MVP, well, Doug Williams threw four touchdown passes in that game. One of them was to Kelvin Bryant from the Philadelphia Stars. One was to Gary Clark from the Jacksonville Bulls. One was to Ricky Sanders from the Houston Gamblers. Doug Williams had played for the Oklahoma Outlaws. Like, the imprint of the USFL is all over 80s and 90s football. It's everywhere you look. Kevin Mack. Kevin Mack. Kevin Mack came to the Browns. He was actually sold from the L.A. left to the Browns when the Express was hemorrhaging money. They were not supposed to do that. It violated every U.S. of overall known <laughs> command, but they needed money, so they sold him to the Browns, I think, for 100000 bucks.
0: And Well, you know, and on top of that, we're, we're recording this on uh, the Tuesday after the, the Chiefs and, and Rams game uh, on Monday Night Football, and... You you look back at you know the, the part you have on Jim Kelly and, and the Houston Gamblers and kind of how they built that team and ran a wide open offense. In, in some ways, you know there were parts of the USFL that were really kind of ahead of their time.
1: Oh, not in some ways, actually. I mean that game. Someone tweeted at me last night that that game reminded them of Express Gamblers, and I was like 100 because it was this game between the LA Express and Houston Gamblers uh, back in '84 when Jim Kelly and Steve Young just lit it up just like last night, but only about 6,000 fans watching it. Um, If you look at NFL offenses at that time, uh, and you watch the, you know, like watching those games, it's almost always quarterback, two wide receivers, fullback, halfback, tight end. Same thing all the time. Maybe once in a while you have a single back. Maybe once in a while you have two tight ends, but it's almost always the same formation. Then you look at the USFL. Mouse Davis is running the run and shoot with Jim Kelly. No tight ends on the roster. Four or five wide receiver sets. The wide receivers they were bringing in were all these guys were like 5'9, 5'10. They ran 4'2, 4'3, 4'4", 40s. It's just track meet, the three step drop, bam, three step drop, bam. Um, so, what you see now in the NFL and what you see now in college football, uh, a ton of it truly started with the USFL and the run and shoot in Mouse Davis in Houston.
0: So in in reading through this, the the one thing that kind of stuck in my mind through everything, you know, and, and there was there were so many factors that went into the re, to why the USFL didn't work. Um, I mean, I mean, some of it was bad weather. I mean, I don't know how many instances instances there are of you citing a big game and then you know it takes place in like a, a snowstorm or a rainstorm or something. Yeah. So So nobody came to watch it. But do you think there was a scenario where this league could have worked?
1: Uh. I mean, it would have been very, very hard to – it would have been hard for the league to be around for 30 years, you know, and for us to still be talking about it. But, um, I mean, a couple of things. Number one, if Donald Trump never got involved, just be honest, because his intentions were not to help the league, they were to help themselves. Number two, if it stayed 100% committed to spring and never even touched the fall. Uh, number three, if um, they, started, they didn't spend uh, insane amounts of money that early on, and the original plan was, was slow growth one or two stars per team. Um, I recently had something, they had something uh, ahead of its time with the regional drafts. So they had a general draft, and then each team would have five territorial schools. So if you were, if you were uh, the Philadelphia Stars, you were drafting from you know whatever Penn State, Pitt, Delaware, Rutgers, whatever. If you were the Tampa Bay Bandits, you were drafting out of Florida, Florida State, Clemson, Clippin. So fans were going to be following these players presumably from high school to college to your teams. I just think that was really smart, but they abandoned almost every good idea they had in the end um, because they followed Donald Trump's plan of going to fall and challenging the NFL. It was just a really – has nothing to do with modern politics. It really doesn't. It was just a really stupid sort of misguided attempt.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, of course, uh, they had issues vetting owners in general – the, the, yeah, and, you know finding guys that maybe had fake money or you know they thought had money and, and didn't have it that, that was that was certainly an issue throughout the, well, the last third expanding, of the as well.
1: Expanding by 6 years after one season is not the best idea <laughs> yeah
0: pro- probably not um who who is, who is someone you talk to among the the bigger names uh the Steve Youngs the the Jim Who is someone you talk to that, that seemed to really have a fondness for the league. Somebody who went on to have success in the NFL, but, but maybe looked back at the USFL fondly.
1: Oh, Steve Young is, is the prime example. Steve Young, Steve Young loves the USFL. He not like it, loves the USFL, loves talking about it, can laugh about it and laugh about it and laugh about it. Books uh, back, I mean, he needs paid nearly the money he was owed. He played for a nut job owner. Uh, by the end of that, you know, his final game, one of the great, one of the final home game in LA best history. They they were playing at the uh, Coliseum, but they were the 90,000-seat stadium. They were drawing about 6,000 a game. So they played their final game, home game ever, at Pierce College, uh, a Division three school in uh, in you know in the suburbs. And it was Doug Williams of the Arizona Outlaws, Steve Young of the LA Spurs, playing at basically a community college field with about 3,000 fans watching. I mean, that's amazing. And um, you know Doug Williams shaking Steve Young's hand after a game and saying, like, What the hell are we doing here? And instead of looking at it with any bit of this, uh, Steve Young and, and Doug Williams actually, both those guys, they just can laugh at it and take real pleasure in it in the memories. You know, it's like looking back at great fraternity days or looking back at your freshman dorm in college. Um, so those guys, Williams, uh, Young, great guys to talk to, really love the US of
0: um, as far as your favorite story in this book, I've I've heard you tell the Greg Field story. Um, you, you know, you're obviously you're obviously welcome to tell that one, uh, but I, I know you've told it multiple other places. Is is there a story in this book that you maybe haven't uh, haven't gotten to tell in, in any of your various appearances that that stands out, or or is the Greg Field story your your favorite one?
1: I have a bunch. You know, it's funny. First of all, I want to say I'm being serious. I appreciate that you read the book. Like it brings me great <laughs> joy because it was just so fun. Like it was so. Not all books have that level of joy. And this book, you know, I think you could see it. it was just a joy for me and because it's so preposterously funny and just so preposterous. Um, I love, I'll give you two real quick, two of my favorites. One, my friend, my friend, Mike Lewis, not the writer, the other Michael Lewis always said, you need to tell this. It was, um, there was a guy in the San Antonio Gunslingers. He was a safety with the team. And they were just having like, the Gunslingers were just having so much like, they were partying really hard. And he had a girlfriend in Kansas who would come to visit him. But he was like, he was having mounds and mounds of sex with the women of San Antonio. And he had an electrician come in and install an answering machine in his wall. So when his girlfriend from Kansas was visiting, um, he could still get the calls from the other women and she wouldn't see it. Which I thought was just insane. But then, my all-time favorite might be, besides Greg Fields, is the Boston Breakers sign the outland trophy winner from nebraska dave remington or they agree to to contract deal with him over the phone and they're really psyched because dave remington was a big time player nebraska outland trophy best lineman in the draft and so they reach an agreement with him and they send uh team representatives to the bogan airport to pick him up and he's not on the plane and they're confused <laughs> and it turns out they were negotiating with a guy pretending to be Dave Remington, just messing around with them. And then they had to admit in a press conference that they'd been fooled by a fake Dave Remington. It's just so US of L, you know? <laughs> but I, I mean, to me, not, I could literally, I won't do it to you. I could be here all day. You could give me a number and I could give you 70 stories. From the, US. It's the most preposterous league that's ever existed.
0: I, I had completely forgotten about the answering machine story, but but I remember when yeah. I read that I'm like, oh, this is incredible. Um, right? Yeah, that was uh, that was imp- the Greg Field story, of course. Uh, people need to go out and, and read the book just for that. Um, but but you actually went and interviewed him, right? This completely insane defensive lineman.
1: Yeah, not only all right. So I mean, the short of it is he, uh, he punched his coach in the face after getting cut, then threatened to kill him. Then the LA <laughs> Express hired Liberace's bodyguard away from Liberace um in order to protect the coach and off and defensive coordinator um so no one had heard from him for years and i kept calling people we went to grambling i called grambling nothing asked different teammates nothing but i found two addresses so just because i don't know i took my uh, my son emmett who was he was nine at the time on a uh on a road trip to san francisco to find greg fields and we knocked on a bunch of doors and different addresses and we ended up, uh, his sister lived in, in an apartment in San Francisco, and she said, oh, I'll, uh, I'll pass on your number. I'll try to pass on your number. And uh, 20 minutes later, I'm driving back to where we're staying, and Greg Fields calls me. And the next day, it's me, my nine-year-old son, and Greg Fields in a food court in Sacramento, eating Cold Stone Creamery and talking about the U.S. So that was one of the great finds of my life. <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. Um, I'll, I'll let you go here in a minute. But just, yeah, obviously, you've written so many other books, but is this one... Is, is this one your favorite because of the subject matter and because it was sort of a, I, I, you know, I not to use the I, I'm going to use this term, I hate it, but a, a passion project. Is, does that make this book more special to you?
1: Yeah, because no number one, I always wanted to write it. Number two, everyone told me not to write it. Like I kept getting rejected and rejected. Who's going to buy it? What's your audience? And I was like, the hell with it. I want to write this. This is the one I want to write. So uh, yeah, it means a lot more. And also it's just like the, the people are so thrilled to talk about it. It was not, this was not digging and digging and begging and trying to get Brett Favre to talk to you. This was guys who were just thrilled to tell you their stories. And that makes it so really fun because I felt like I was a part of it.
0: And, and the, and the last one I want to bring up is uh, the, something that I don't, we'll never see this. And, and I don't know if it ever happened before this. I, it will never happen again. This league will always be able to say they had two rosters, two entire rosters traded for each other.
1: Yeah, it's the best thing ever. The best trade ever Chicago Blitz, Arizona Wranglers, because the owner of the Chicago Blitz lived in Arizona and didn't like making the flight to Chicago nine times a year for games. So the natural solution was to trade the rosters for each other. It's the best league ever. Truly. <laughs> really, I'm not saying it's the best football ever. I'm not saying, you know, blah, 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 but there's no more entertaining entity in sports history than the USFL. I will maintain that.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a really great read. Uh, it's football for a buck, the crazy rise and crazier demise of the USFL. And, uh, you know, we didn't touch a lot of the Donald Trump stuff, but, um, for that alone, it's, it's certainly worth, uh, worth reading. Um, you know, had, I don't know, maybe it would have paid more attention to that before, uh, before the presidential election a few years, a few years ago, we wouldn't know what was coming, but, uh, there, there's a yeah, lot of that in here. And, uh, uh, just some really great football stories and and some names I know Browns fans will recognize, and of course, just NFL fans in general will recognize. Jeff, uh, appreciate you taking the time. All right,
1: thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it.
0: That was Jeff Perlman. My thanks to him for taking the time to talk to us. Again, the book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Go check it out wherever you buy books, whether it's on Amazon, whatever. Read it. It's a lot of fun. If you love football, if you love crazy football stories, this book is absolutely full of them. Uh, So go check that out. So thanks to Jeff for that. Thanks to Sibling Revelry Brewing for sponsoring us. And thanks to all of you for listening.